0: I would invite you to join with me in prayer, and we ask the Lord just to do what we have just been singing about, to help us to turn our hearts toward the Lord God, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, we ask you this morning to do just that in our hearts. Would you, would you incline our hearts to turn their full attention toward you? Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your presence among us, I pray, Father, That you would draw us to yourself, uh, draw our hearts, our minds, our whole being toward you, O God. I pray that our eyes would turn to you, our hearts would turn to you, our attention would turn to you. Lord, you have something to say to us today from your word, and I pray that you would teach us, continue to teach us who we are, how we are to live, what we are to believe, O God. How we can please you, how we can serve you. You have done so much for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And Lord, we thank you that we have this rich, rich privilege of being in your family, being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we gather together this morning, I pray that you would open up our minds willingly and our hearts willingly to serve you and to obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and Amen. Well, there are 27,000 churches in Canada. That's one for every 1,300 people. You would think, uh, even if there were 100 people in each of these churches, you would think that that would would mean we'd have somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 uh, 3 million Christians in this country. You would think that that it would be sh- we would be shaping this country into uh, a better, more moral, less murderous country. After all, 12 men turned the world upside down. Unless there's something wrong with the churches in our country. Maybe not all churches are actually churches. In Romans chapter 9 verse 6, the Apostle Paul was giving an explanation as to why things were as bad as they were, considering, uh, in particular, among the people of Israel. And and they were wondering if the Word of God had failed, had failed them. And and Paul writes this, Not as though God's Word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's Romans 9, 6. Not all descended. I, I would submit to you that Not all descended from the the first and early church, the first believing churches, are actually churches. Today we're looking at um, identity crisis. Last week we looked at what is the church. Today we're going to look at what is a church. And hopefully we'll answer some of the questions that you have in your minds and in your hearts as to why we do some of the things we do, why we do them the way we do them, the marks of the church. And we're looking at a biblical historical perspective and a historical approach. And in order to start a discovery, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at the first um, seven verses there. And we're going to zero in on on a a section uh, that will lead us through our discovery today. But while you're turning there, um, what we're going to try to do this morning is catch up from the original writings of the New Testament through about 381 of the first years of the church and, and how it developed and uh, historically and biblically and give answers to why we are the way we are, why we do the things we do. So if you're there, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord... Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Well, this is the word of God. So um, the question this morning is, how can you know whether or not a church is in fact a New Testament church? Just because you call yourself a church or just because a church calls itself a church doesn't mean that Jesus actually would. In fact, in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus talks about walking among the lampstands. And of course, there he's talking about the churches uh, that were uh, present at the time. He talks about walking among the churches; He calls them lampstands. And he talks about putting some of them out. I will remove, he says, your lampstand from its place. So Jesus himself acknowledges in the scriptures that not all churches are in fact churches that, that, that by definition of scripture are actually churches. So of the 27,000 churches in Canada, how many are really churches? And so that's what we're going to investigate today and talk about today. And... Um, One of the founding creeds that was established in 381 uh, AD at the Council of Constantinople established the marks, the four key marks of a New Testament church, a legitimate New Testament church. And many of us know this as the Apostles' Creed. It was first developed in Nicaea, uh, which is... uh, Uh, today modern Turkey, uh, and and was uh, revised in 381 in Constantinople, which is today the modern city of Istanbul, Turkey. And this is uh, familiar to us and establishes the marks of the church. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, I should tell you that every church... All of the churches across the world, whether they be Protestant churches, Roman Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, ascribe to this creed that we believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. So if we all are agreeing on this as the marks of the church, why are there so many denominations? Why are we so scattered? Why are we so fractured? And more importantly, why are the vast majority of churches not really legitimate churches well that's what i hope to to develop with you today as we look at the, not only the historic approach to this but a biblical approach and understand what the original framers of this creed meant when they wrote it as one holy catholic apost- apostolic church we're going to look at each of these four marks uh today lord willing and, and as time permits, and. Um, quite frankly, the drift from the intended biblical moorings of these four marks has been the reason that the church has fractured uh, globally and why there are so many churches that are not even recognizable as a New Testament church. So, um, as we embark on this, the first of These marks is one, the oneness of the church, or the emphasis on unity. Church, the stress on church as unity. The essential oneness of church finds its source, of course, in the oneness or unity of the triune God, the essential nature of who God is. That's why we read this morning in Ephesians already uh, that there is one Lord, one God, the essential unity of God, which is the basis of the mark of a New Testament church. And of course, uh, narrowing it down or zeroing in more particularly in the scriptures, it talks about there is one body, one body. So the question then, why so many denominations? There's nothing wrong with the statement or the mark itself. The mark is a good mark. The church is one, the oneness of the church, the unity of the church. That, that's a, a great identifier. Uh, Why has there been a a drift, though, in in this particular area? Why have there been so many denominations uh, with respect to this? Um... We have, to, we have to look at history to understand a little bit, perhaps uh, most of you, uh, your eyes glaze over when everybody mentions the subject of history, but I hope, I hope you'll stay with me for a few moments because we can't understand who we are if we don't understand where we came from and how we got here. And so I want to I share a few thoughts with you and understand that in the first several hundred years of the New Testament church, the ancient church, there were many schisms that occurred, many, many drifts theologically, many things that happened. In fact, for the first um, 300 years of the church, Christianity was illegal in the world, particularly in the Roman Empire. And uh, it, halfway through the, uh, the second century, uh, in around 249 uh, AD, uh, a tremendous assault was uh, launched with a great fury against the church uh, of, of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that great launch of, of uh, persecution on the church, uh, many people who had were baptized and proclaimed to follow Christ were defecting from the church. And, uh, and becoming idol worshipers, going back into their old ways in, in uh, worshiping the multiple of Roman gods in order to uh, uh, appease the, the, the people of the land and, and get their, their jobs back and all kinds of things like that. At the same time, um, a 13-year uh, severe plague uh, broke out across the Roman Empire. Now, we've been, we've been in a one-year plague. They were in a 13-year plague a severe plague that racked the, uh, the empire. And um, the church, uh, many people during this time, of course, uh, viewed this, uh, this situation as the judgment of God upon them. Many who had defected from the church were uh, wanting to be reinstated in the church. And so there was a, there was a great turmoil, turmoil going on and uh, one of the uh, more recognizable bishops by the name of Cyprian, we, we introduced him last week, Cyprian of Carthage, which is in, in Tunisia, uh, proposed a solution in uh, a, a, a writing entitled The Unity of the Church. And he proposed a solution that, that unity would be required Uh, whereby everyone would give their allegiance and their their, um, loyalty to the authority of the local bishop. So the idea was that the church would be organized uh, around local bishops and the authority uh, on that uh, local group of believers would be based on the bishop of that city. And that's how they would pull some sort of unity together. And also, he required in the unity of the church that those who were wanting to be reinstated into the church would be allowed to come back, would be allowed to repent and be reinstated in the church. And this caused a great schism in the church. Not only that, but by the year 1302, this idea of authority resting in local bishops... Uh, by 1302, these, this structural organization developed so that there was one authority, one bishop, uh, the Pope, and um, in 1302, Pope uh, Boniface VIII required submission to himself as necessary for salvation. So this. This movement of structuring unity around the authority of organizational structure resulted in a massive drift from the gospel, which today we still experience, and led to the Reformation. It wasn't until the Emperor Constantine in 312, uh, was converted to Christianity, that, that persecution on the church was rescinded. And uh, he, by, on the basis of a vision of a cross in the sky, actually came to faith in Christ. And then he himself declared that there would be need to be a council that would determine uh, the church's doctrine. And that was when, in 325, the Nicene Creed was formed. Um, but it was formed, unfortunately, around political systems that were already in place. Unity was based upon loyalty to the local bishop and ultimately a human construct of of an organizational um, megastructure as opposed to a spiritual loyalty to Christ and his church, Christ as the head of the church. And so we have this, this good mark that ultimately became tampered with by human construct leading to organizational structure as opposed to spiritual loyalty and we have the denominations and the scattering of denominations throughout the world. So what does it mean when we say here at Calvary what does it mean when we say um, that Calvary is expressing the oneness of the church? What, What does it mean when we say that? Well I wanna give you four quick things that are important to understand in terms of how we understand the unity or the oneness of the church. We understand it this way, that spiritual unity is with those who are truly saved, those who belong to Christ. Uh, In the Ephesians text, one Lord, one faith, as opposed to unity to an organized, or loyalty to an organizational structure. It It is our understanding of what true unity meant in the scriptures was unity to Christ, unity to the Word of God, unity to, um, uh, unity with those who truly knew Christ as as Savior, which must be expressed, by the way, as uh, uh, beyond uh, uh, unity to one local congregation. We believe that to express the oneness of our faith in Jesus Christ requires of us to be in unity and in fellowship and in relationship with other like-minded local churches that are in unity with those who are truly saved. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 13 is Christ divided? No. And so we believe that There is a necessity to be in unity with local churches, other local churches, churches that believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have a high view of Scripture, and parachurch ministries that likewise support the gospel. Even those who have some different practices or emphases than we do. By the way, unity is not a hope, it is a fact. Unity is God's... uh, Hammett writes in his book, unity is God's gift to every church in the gospel. Expressing it is every church's ongoing task. It is critical for the local church and the body of believers not to snub true gospel partners. As I was growing up in church decades ago, there were some challenges with respect to unity within the the Gospel Fellowship, around certain ministries, around certain parachurch ministries. Uh, one of the, the the challenges that I grew up with were, was um, unity with uh, Billy Graham and his ministry. And uh, some of the churches that took a, a very uh, strong, fundamental position, um, uh, struggled to be in partnership with Billy Graham Ministries because... Billy Graham, although a a fantastic believer, follower of Christ, great evangelist uh, himself, um, when he did local city uh, crusades, local city uh, uh, outreaches, would um, invite all of the churches in the cities to join with him. And that that would include churches that that, uh, did not hold fast to the high view of scripture or uh, the, the truth of the gospel. And uh, so there was, um, there was great consternation in those days as to whether or not it was legitimate to be in, in fellowship with Billy Graham Ministries. Well, I, over the years, I have learned that as I understand the oneness and unity of, of, of the church, that unity not, unity's not a hope, it's a fact. And all of those People who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior Lord and practice a high view of Scripture, we're going to get a little more specific uh, going forward, must never be snubbed by their brothers or sisters in Christ. Unity is a fact and a task, but by the way, never ever at the cost of the gospel. Unity must serve the gospel and not be allowed to... We never sacrifice... Legitimate and sincere held biblical beliefs. That's why interfaith unity goals actually undermine God and his church. I.e. those who do not, are not of like-minded faith as us. There is no unity with apostasy. The second of these major uh, marks is holy. The holiness of the church. Another, by the way, central attribute Of God himself in fact God has called us to be holy why because he says I am holy now um, this gives us um, the this mark helps us to establish why particular membership in a local church is so important Um, now as we take our our journey in this we we, um, need to examine how the early church wrestled with this because they asked the question, can any church be absolutely holy when in fact it's populated by human beings? In fact, Jesus uh, talks about the parable in Matthew 13, 24 to 30 and mentions that yes, there are wheat and weeds that are consecutively uh, growing together in local assemblies. And of course, the uh, recognition that there is always sin among us and so there was there was great challenge as the early church hammered out this idea of the mark of a church how can a church be holy when in fact it's inhabited by flawed and sinful human beings perhaps as augustine suggested the church should only be holy on the basis of the fact that god is holy but but the scriptures themselves call us we are to be holy as god because god is holy so um, they, uh, of course, it was developed a, a, a Latin word to refer to this, corpus permixtum, which meant there is a mixture in any church of people who are, at least in the assembly or the gathering of church, of people who are saved and people who are lost. People who are, uh, are, are living a life of, of uh, uh, rejecting sinfulness in their lives and other people who are struggling with sin. There's a recognition of that. So it became necessary and it's become necessary for us as we understand the nature as I'm talking about Calvary Baptist Church understands the nature of what holiness really means and what the church being holy really means is to take a journey and look at what the scriptures tell us because once again, each of these marks was developed um, uh, with a biblical undergirding so that, that the, the meaning and the, was sourced in the scriptures themselves. The church is holy because the head of the church itself is holy, Jesus Christ. But, and this is critically important in determining whether a church is really a church or not a church. But the local church is holy only to the degree that the people themselves are holy, being made holy. You say, well, wait a second. What are, what are you referring to here? What I'm referring to is... Only to the degree that people are actually saved. That the church is made up of saved people, not perfect people, being made perfect. Now, let's take a journey uh, through the scriptures to understand what we're talking about here. Uh, In 1 Corinthians uh, 1-2, Paul writes and gives us this, this very biblical idea of Holy being made holy when he says to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified. Sanctified means holy. Holy means set apart for God's purposes in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours. So the distinction here is noted that there's, there's two, two situations for everyone who belongs to the Lord. We are already wholly in position if we are a believer. If we come to know Jesus Christ, we are already sanctified. Therefore, we are wholly set apart for God, for His purposes, called out for His purposes, but we are also in a state of progress called to be holy, a state of process, a state of being transformed and changed into the likeness of Christ. So every church that is truly a church has saved people who are being made complete in Christ, set apart in Christ. The writer of the Hebrews talks about um, this, this idea of the perfection of the believer as an already done deal recorded in heaven when he writes this, but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, i.e. the church of Christ, whose names are written in heaven already. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've been called out to follow him your name is already permanently recorded in heaven you have come to god the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect it's literally a done deal so the church is holy if it is populated by those who are saved on the basis of our permanent position as sanctified and written in heaven now, this is what, why Baptists and others, of course, not just us, but why Baptists and others have placed such an emphasis on saved church membership in order to be a legitimate, true New Testament church. And, of course, church discipline. Because we are called to be holy even as God is holy. We are called out as holy Being made holy, a church is redeemed, called out, followers of Christ, and it's only as holy as it is populated by saints, the sanctified, the holy, the saved. Now, the lost are welcome in our assemblies. The lost are welcome to be part of our assemblies that they might come to know the Lord, But there's a distinction that the true true church is only made up of those who are actually regenerate, those who are saved. That's why Baptist churches do not accept into membership a person who's not baptized as a believer, thereby giving testimony to their salvation. So Paul also writes and, and gives us another picture of this in Ephesians 5. 25 to 27, notice. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice this, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy and then cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, so making her holy, has made her holy and is making her holy To present her to himself ultimately one day as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless being completed now. So, so what? What's the so what on this whole area? How holy then is Calvary Baptist Church in our practices? Um, In fact, um, this answers the question how seriously is the local church taking holiness. And how do we take holiness seriously? Well, first of all, because the local church is called to be holy, only saved, spirit-indwelt people can be members. Therefore, only the saved are able to be baptized. Now, you need to hang on all of these words and understand the implications of this. Because the church, a legitimate Church, New Testament church, is to be populated by the holy, only those who are truly saved or holy are able to be baptized and permitted into membership because you can't be holy without having the Holy Spirit. Secondly, every true believer should pursue membership in the local church. To clear up identity confusion. Now every true believer. From the scriptures. Is a member of the universal church. But it's the local church. Where holiness is worked out. And so every true believer. Should pursue membership in the local church. Even though membership isn't, isn't an actual. Um, isn't actually identified in the, in the uh, scriptures. It's assumed where there were 3,000 saved in one day, they were added to the church. There was always an organizational structure and recognition of those who were part of that local body. They were known to be part of that local body. So membership is, is everywhere in the understanding of, of the Scriptures, of the New Testament Scriptures. So, so the question is, uh, of those who, who, who remain somehow distant from membership, they, they cling to a local assembly, but they don't actually identify themselves as members of that local assembly. You know, the question goes out, are you holy? Are you saved? Are you a called out person or not? The same Jesus who called you who himself has called you commanded you to be baptized and, and work out the perfecting of your holiness in the local church. Thirdly, church discipline, therefore, is necessary because of the command to be a holy church. It is necessary that members of the church who unrepentantly continue to sin be removed. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. All of these establish the seriousness with which a local church takes this mark of authenticity seriously. How holy is the church? John Hammett in his book uh, writes this, holiness is obscured to the degree that unbelievers are present in it, and to the degree that unbelieving conduct is practiced, even by those who are holy in status. So, the church is one, the church is holy, the church, thirdly, is Catholic. The Catholicity of the church. Not very often in a Baptist church do you hear the word Catholic used. But it should be, because uh, this word is not about priests and nuns and mass. This word... Catholic, the Catholicity of the church, is about the Great Commission. Uh, the major distinction between God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament church is the global scope of God's people. This answers the question for the church, how extensive is the church? How extensive, how extensive is the ministry, the outreach of a legitimate, authentic New Testament church? Because the word Catholic simply means global or universal or worldwide. The early formers uh, defining the authenticity of the church uh, were uh, for, formed the idea that a church should be Catholic. A church should have a worldwide perspective. The church was meant to, to move to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, verse 19. It was always God's vision. vision that God's people would take the reign of God internationally. It is more pronounced in the New Testament as Christ gave the mandate to the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit would carry forth that mission. Cyril of Jerusalem in 350 AD said this, the church then is called Catholic because it is spread through the whole world from one end of the earth to the other. It is called Catholic because it brings into religious obedience every sort of men, rulers, and ruled, learned and simple, and because it is a universal treatment and cure for every kind of sin. Hallelujah. From the Scriptures, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. Galatians 3.28. God has purchased men for God, Christ has purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5, 9. And then, of course, the Great uh, Commission, Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all, note the word there, all nations. Mark Deaver in his book, The Catholic Church, says this, the church's catholicity is rooted in and bounded by the gospel's catholicity. Anytime, this is, this is so rich, anytime, anywhere, anyone can be forgiven his or her sins by faith alone in the one and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not, listen, if you're out there this morning or whatever day you're, you're uh, tuning into this, listen to this again, anytime, anywhere, anyone can be forgiven his or her sins by faith alone in the one and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So what? How Catholic is Calvary Baptist Church? Well, we've been known uh, through the ages as Jesus, the Jesus Saves Church. That makes us very Catholic. Local gospel passion, robust international force of gospel ambassadors who are supported by this church. Literally, the sun never sets on the Calvary Baptist Church mission. The Catholic doctrine of the church requires a passion for mission in every believer, and every local church. The doctrine is not fully realized until every people group has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And there is no one culture, no one race, no one type of people No one political ideology to whom the church belongs or with whom the church exclusively identifies. This is critically important to us. Calvary Baptist Church is a geographic, multi-ethnic part of God's global Catholic church to the glory of God. So the question, are we Catholic? How Catholic is Calvary Baptist Church? is answered by another question, how open are we to all? We have to be, that's who we're called to be, that's who we're commissioned to be by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fourth is apostolic, the apostolicity of the church. In other words, from where does the church derive her authority? Apostolic succession or scriptures? Bishops or apostles? Current or ancient? This is a critical question to answer in the legitimacy of a church being actually a church. In fact, this question along with the oneness question, den- denominations exist uh, uh, has, has most resulted in the, the uh, mixture and fracturing of, of the church into denominations Um, Because it is about power, it is about control, it is about truth and the transference of truth. As the word itself implies, listen, as the word itself implies, apostolic, apostle, the question that every church must answer is, is the source of our beliefs and practice found in the apostles' And their teachings. So we understand the Baptist practice is to understand that succession came from Christ's absolute authority over his church, commissioning Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to twenty, the apostles, who in turn were authorized who in turn were authorized uh, to endure, uh, in turn, authorized writings in turn to endure as the authority for the church. Now let me work that out with you in the scriptures here. Where do we get that from? All authority has been given to me, Matthew 28, 20. He who receives you, he, Jesus said this to his apostles in Matthew 20, 10. He who receives you receives me. In 2 Corinthians 13, 10, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me, Paul writes, Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Jude 3, and the intention that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So, the Reformation divided the church on the basis of a number of things, but particularly here, on the authority of the church in 1517. It had become a powerful political juggernaut. We noted that in thir- by 1302, uh, Pope Boniface VIII had declared himself basically sovereign and that salvation was could only be had by submission to him. The church had become a political juggernaut. It was selling salvation for money. It was teaching that salvation was gained by works of the flesh. And it was needing to be rescued from apostasy. It was the Reformation that divided the church necessarily, but of course with great risk. Because when the Reformation occurred the authority of the church was now entrusted to the scriptures themselves. There would be no central structure and there was no centralized theological adjudication. So what are the Protestant boundaries or what are the Protestant guardrails that keep us bounded to the truth? John Calvin writes this, on a church being a true church, wherever we see the word of God purely preached, note the word purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. So the word of God purely from the text preached as it's intended and properly exegeted and heard and the sacraments, we call them ordinances, the Lord's table, baptism, is administered according to Christ's institution. In other words, how the scriptures based by Christ were given to us, there it, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. The contrary is wherever the word of God is not purely preached or heard or wherever the admi- ordinances are not administered according to Christ's institution It is not a church. So what? So what to Calvary? Well, we ought to wrap this up quickly. How how apostolic is Calvary Baptist Church? We are people of the book. The church in heaven has perfect apostolicity. In other words, the apostles are already there. And those of our loved ones who are already there, they can go and check out the teachings of the scriptures right from the mouths of those who Christ empowered to write. But we see through a glass dimly. So for us, the actual apostles, the writings of the scriptures, uh, we take a high view for rules of faith and practice at Calvary. A church to be a church must preach the word of God faithfully and carefully. Paul writes in Romans one I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not everyone who pays, not everyone who works, but rather everyone who believes. For in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But the righteous man shall live by faith. The cre- we are credited the righteousness of Jesus Christ through our faith in Christ. And it is the proper, the two things, the people of the book and the proper administration of the sacraments or the ordinances, the Lord's table, uh, supper, and baptism. Elmer Towns and, and uh, Ed Stetzer in their book, uh, Perimeters of Light, note this. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are essential elements without which a true church cannot exist. These are the guardrails of Protestantism. The practice of both, Miroslav Volf writes, who's a Croatian theologian, the practice of both must accurately reflect the gospel they represent and not be a threat to the gospel. In other words, mode and methods preach something the way we pre- practice lord's table the way we practice baptism preaches the gospel the mode and the method matter or it's preaching something else and the theologians in the in, in the buttressing the guardrails and practice of a protestant legitimate new testament church the ordinances preach the legitimate gospel if the sacrament seeks to convey grace without faith, they represent and not be, sorry, they, it repudiates the gospel. If the sacrament or the ordinance seeks to convey grace without faith, in other words, grace by works, faith, uh, salvation by works, it repudiates the gospel. The sacraments, ordinances, properly practiced, symbolize the gospel, they don't replace it. And the two possibilities, impropriety and practice that compromises the message of the gospel disqualifies the church as a church. Wherever the ordinances, the sacraments lead people away from the truth of the gospel, which is salvation by grace through faith, that ceases to be a church. Where the administration of the ordinances is improper or unusual or irregular, such as not practiced the way Jesus commissioned it to be practiced, it weakens the church, weakens the health of the church. So there you have it. The essential marks of uh, authentic church are one, Meaning one with the holy one with Christ, one in the Holy Spirit, holy, meaning saved, growing in the Lord, Catholic, meaning missional, evangelical, apostolic, meaning a high view of Scripture, an assembly, formed and bounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel-centered. Otherwise, it's not a church. So let me wrap this up this morning with a question to to each of you. How are you doing in this? How are you doing? Things to think about and act upon as we go off the air. How are you doing in the matter of salvation? Have you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior? You can today. If you know Christ as your Savior, have you been baptized as a believer? And if you've been baptized as a believer, or you're saved and you haven't yet been baptized as a believer, reach out to one of our pastors to be baptized. And, and if, you've, if you are baptized as a believer, are, are you a member of this local church? If not, why not? Why have you not cl- clarified your identity in Christ? How about holiness? Yes or no? Are you seeking to live a life that pleases God and says yes to Christ and no to sin? Or how about uh, 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 unity, extended and practiced? Are you evangelistic, reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his scripture, your authority? What do you need to deal with today? What of these things must you deal with? What it means to worship the Lord. So these are the marks. This is what it means to be a church, a legitimate, authentic church, a real church, and be a real Christian in that church. Father, thank you for your word again to us today. Thank you for these marks that give us structure and boundary and help us understand what is legitimate, what is authentic. I pray now, Lord, that you will help us to uh, ponder the questions, the serious questions about salvation and baptism, membership, unity, Catholicity, mission, evangelism, scriptural authority in our own lives, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.